Today's scripture is taken from Lamentations 3, verses 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I've been to Yellowstone four times. Certainly not David's 27 times. Four times, but I want to go back. My first visit was in September of 1994. And on that very first day, according to my field book, I saw a mule deer, an elk, a huge bull buffalo, a herd of buffalo, some more buffalo, a coyote hunting, a raven, three osprey, a bald eagle, a kingfisher, and a large hawk. And all that without even trying. All that without even leaving my car or the visitor's areas. Yellowstone is called America's Garden of Eden for a reason. And when you go back into the backcountry, when you get away from the day hikers and the visitors, you can really see some wonderful things. I've camped in the backcountry of Yellowstone three times now. The first by myself, the second with my son Mackenzie, and the last time with Marsha. There's something special about stepping off that trailhead for some days and nights in the back country and realizing that when you do that, you're no longer the highest thing on the food chain. The grizzly bear is. So you take precautions. That was that book I showed you. But the sight, the sounds, the magnificent vistas make that bit of trepidation all worthwhile. Here's a note from, from my field book of one evening that Marsha and I spent there, reading from the field book. Last night we saw a small herd of elk just below us crossing the lake. We heard them first splashing through the water. They took up quarters in the woods about 300 yards away. Several times in the night we were awakened by the bull elks bugling. The night was mostly clear with a few clouds to the southeast. The stars shone, too many to count. We could see the Milky Way. There was a shooting star right over the tent and even a satellite. All else was still. We woke up to a frost. It's October 1st. As Alex Pulaski wrote in a recent Washington Post travel section, Yellowstone is reliably magnificent. Of course, the animals, the countryside, but Yellowstone is also known, as David read, for Old Faithful. Old Faithful is a centerpiece in the park. The main lodge is built just a few hundred yards from the geyser, and so too is the main ranger station and many of the support facilities and visitors' facilities. It's called Old Faithful for a reason. It's a geyser that erupts and erupts spectacularly on a regular schedule. It's the only geyser in the park and maybe the only one in the world that you can count on to see. Now, to be clear, Old Faithful is, in the words of the National Park Guide, somewhat reliable. It'll go off 20 to 21 times a day and between 70 and 90 minutes 
between eruptions. Now that puts an interesting meaning on the word faithful. For old faithful, being faithful in its performance doesn't mean being perfect. I think that's a good lesson for us. But I'm getting ahead of myself. First, we should take a look at this thing called being faithful. What does it mean to be faithful? We tend to use this term rather loosely, like we use the word love. We talk about being faithful in carrying out our promises and our vows. We talk about being faithful to a cause or a political party or membership in a club. We talk about animals being faithful. Indeed, the word dog is oftentimes just the equivalent of the word faithful. And indeed, if you see a small dog painted in a portrait or painting from the Renaissance, that small dog is a, a signal for faithfulness. And of course, there's the faithful friend. But what does it mean to be faithful? It just can't mean being dependable. If being faithful meant only being dependable, then my alarm clock is faithful. And it can't just mean keeping our vows and promises. If it did, then we would not have to be able to have faithful friends without asking them to make a vow. I think the point is that you can't have a being faithful without having faith. If I'm faithful to you, then that means you have faith in me to act a certain way, to be there for you. And I, in turn, have faith in you to be there for me. When you think about it, the whole concept of having faith in someone or something, of being faithful, it's hard to get a hold of. But it does mean being there. The same holds for faith in God. God being there for us as we are for God. It strikes me as somewhat funny that so many people balk at considering faith in God um, to be reasonable when the normal course of our life as human beings is to take so much else on faith. We have faith, for example, in people obeying traffic signals. We have faith in our electric company to turn on the lights that we've got here in the sacristy. We have faith in our gas company. We have faith in our newspapers being delivered. To be sure, we all put up with some sort of test of faithfulness when we use it in our lives and with friends or pets or anything else we claim for faith. And the test is simple. Did the person or animal or thing act in a way that disappointed us? Did he or she or it break faith? Were they there for us when we were there for them? We might have somewhat higher standards of faithfulness if we take an oath or a vow. For example, our marriage vows. But even here, the test is pretty straightforward. Was the vow kept or not? Is the person faithful or not? But that can't be the whole story. These simple tests for faith, like off and on switches, um, can't work. Because there's this thing called forgiveness. The point is that faith and faithfulness are grounded in a relationship that also recognizes forgiveness. Is this true about our faith in God? In our Western rational culture, faith in, belief in God, must, the reasoning goes, 
be based on something that cannot be rationally explained or demonstrated. By common usage, if not by definition, then faith in God is a concept that our scientists call unprovable. So to a rational mind, a scientific mind, faith in God is irrational, unscientific. Our rationalist friends will even quote scripture to prove the point. Paul to the Corinthians, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And there's that old standby from Hebrews. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And our rationalist friend, who looks somewhat askance at our faith in God, might even quote the Master when Jesus tells Thomas, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. So, says our rationalist friend, your very faith rests on what can't be proven. And therefore, you're not very rational. Well, the difficulty our rationalist friends, our faith-doubting friends run into, is that they too have a faith in the unseen. It's the essence of faith, faith in the unseen. Just ask your friend who challenges you whether they've ever had faith in love or faith in their own abilities or even faith in their own science. You see, faith isn't so irrational at all. It's a very rational human response to ourselves in the world. You don't have to prove anything in order to have faith in something or someone. Indeed, faith is hardwired into our DNA. And the only question for us is, what should we have faith in? If you truly believe in a creator, God, then faith follows. That's truly believing in that God. Rabbi Adon Stansaltz says it this way, Is God as real to you as a table? That's a pretty good test. Tables are real. Bang into them. Use them. Is God real to you as a table? That, of course, means that faith in God is the very thing that recognizes that we are in a relationship with God. Faith goes both ways. If I'm to be faithful, a faithful friend to you, that must mean that you have faith in me to act faithfully. and so too if you're to be a faithful friend to me. It works the same way with God. Faith is God's gift to us. And we in turn gift that back to God. Faithfulness, Paul tells us in Galatians, is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Faith, he reminds us in Ephesians, is given to us by grace. It's a gift we're given by the Holy Spirit. Patrick Lauder puts it this way, in faith the infinitely small and the infinitely large meet. Which is another way of saying that faith transcends the realm of quantity and human measures, that a mustard seed can be enough to move mountains. What then does it mean to have faith? What's in it for us? The answer lies in a series of promises that we've been given. It's a promise to be forgiven. It's a promise to be healed of the pain of being less than we can fully be or are fully meant to be. 
It's a promise that we are saved. And with that promise, a promise to be loved and comforted and led. And in return, what is it that we're to give back? What's in it for God? If we have faith in God, if we're to be faithful followers of this Trinitarian God we follow, if we were to call ourselves Christians, the answer is simple. We give back to God the love that God has given to us. And these are the two great commandments. To love God with our whole essence and to love our neighbor as ourselves. To love our neighbor, our fellow humans, no matter what their color or their nationality or their sex or their political party that they may be a part of, or whether they wear a badge or whether they worship as a Wiccan or whether they stand there with a three-day hangover. We're to love our neighbor. The idea, of course, is that in loving on our fellow humans, we're loving the image of God. It's a sort of carom shot. It's about the story of the final judgment of Matthew 25. It's what that's all about. Doing for the least of God's people is to do it for God, for their Creator. Now, if this sounds like a quid pro quo, that God gives and we return the gift, that's one way to look at it. But it's not the only way. This is important. We cannot turn the gift of faith into a conditional deal to accept faith only on our terms. The vast expanse of God's acting with human beings is one of covenant but a covenant that's begun by God with Abraham, with Noah, with Isaac, with Jacob, Israel itself, and the new covenant of Jesus Christ. It comes from God to us for our response back. It's the sort of mindset we need to have that says that we believe in God. And it's not one that says, and you may have heard this, that I cannot believe in a God who, or I cannot believe in a God that, fill in the blank. I cannot believe in a God that allows war. I cannot believe in a God that allows the innocent to die. Or a God that lets pandemics loose on the world. When it comes to having faith in a God that exists with me in a world that has so much wrong with it, so much evil, I need help. Because that's not the faith that we're given. We're not given a deal that says we get to worship a God that we don't like. To understand what I mean, I, I try to turn to those who in faith have suffered a great harm and a great evil. And one of those is Abraham Joshua Herschel one of the great Jewish philosophers of the 20th century. And he represents just such a people. And here's what he said about faith in God, about a Jew's faith in God. Faith is an act of freedom, of independence of our own limited faculties, whether of reason or sense perception. I take great comfort in those words. Faith as an act of freedom lets me understand Job when and hearing that he's lost not only his wealth, but his children, tears his clothes, shaves his head, falls to the ground, and worships. That's the word. And he worshiped. 
And he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Faith is an act of our own limitations, lets me understand the hapless father begging for his child, child's healing from the demon who demands of Jesus. Demands of Jesus. I believe. Help my unbelief. Faith as an act of freedom lets me glimpse the depths of sacrifice of our Savior willingly taking the cross. The point is we're asked to have faith in a God that simply is. In a God that is a mystery and that somehow is in us and that is a God who is being itself so that we and all creation can exist all in its and our own messiness. We as Christians, and I might add Jews and Muslims as well, have not been promised lives to be lived without pain or suffering or without evil. Ours is a different promise. One of faith in a God whose being, and that will bring that being into the promise of justice and mercy and an end of suffering. G. Willow Wilson is a practicing Muslim. And she captures this in a few well-chosen words. She writes, Faith in God then is less a belief than it is a decision. The will to act in the face of ultimately unknowable divine reasoning. In the acting, she continues, we can find comfort, as she says. But if God is all-encompassing, then he's just as present in defeat as in success. And it's in this presence that for Muslims, comfort lies. I would add, for Christians too. We worship a God that is a suffering God, that is with us in suffering, that is with us in fighting evil in this world. That's what this morning's scripture is about. What Trish read to us is from the book of Lamentations. As his name implies, Lamentations is not a cheerful book. Far from it. It's the prayer, the cry of despair of a people who have lost everything. They've lost loved ones to death. They've lost their temple. They've lost their place of worship. They've lost their place of living. It's the cry of a people who've lost everything. And yet even in the depths of their pain and fear and exile, they look to God and they say, a prayer of hope. They look to God and say that God is magnificent. There's one more aspect of faith and faithfulness I want to speak to this morning. And that's what happened when it seems like our faith is not returned. That God has taken a vacation from our lives. It's what we feel is a low ebb. Our prayers aren't answered. Maybe we don't even feel like praying. It's when we feel that low ebb of faith or no ebb at all. It's sometimes what happens when we say we've lost our faith. It's a story of Gethsemane. It's a story of life. And let me give you two such stories. The first might be a familiar one to you. I'm going to read the story from a wonderful publication that called The Parabola. It's a story of a dark night for Martin Luther King. On the night of January 27th, King took a particularly menacing call threatening his life. He fell into despair, 
terrified for the lives of his family and ready to quit the movement. I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward, he later wrote. He left his bed, made some coffee, and sat at his kitchen table, praying out loud. Quote, I'm at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. Close quote. An empty vessel ready to be filled. And this is his words. At that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced him before. It seemed as though I could hear a voice saying, stand up for righteousness, stand up for truth, and God will be at our side forever. This experience sealed God's faith in the sacred rightness of his cause and in the reality of a benevolent personal God. Three days later, his house was bombed and he persisted in leading the boycott, which sparked the civil rights movement. The experience also turned King, who at the time used armed bodyguards and was seeking a gun permit, toward a full commitment to nonviolence. The second story of faith I want to tell you may not be as familiar. Rabbi Israel Abraham Kaziki and his six-year-old son Zvi one night were on the death train to Belzac during the Holocaust. And Rabbi Israel took his young son and near the hatch of that cattle car and showed him the night and the night stars and told him about a great and loving and merciful God. And then he threw his son out the window of that train. Against all odds, Zvi was found, returned to his mother, and survived to tell that story. This is faith when everything is lost. To say that prayer into the night. So it is when you've lost faith. And please, when that happens. And because we are human and live in an all-too-human world, it will happen. If that happens, that's exactly when we need to reach out to God. It's exactly when we need to pray. To pray and to move forward into the darkness. To put our love out into the world. And that's what we need to remember what Ms. Wilson calls the encompassing presence of God. I'll end with a prayer. It's taken from Dana Fald's book, Prayers to the Infinite, New Yoga Poems. And the prayer is called, Hitting Bottom. I find no peace in meditation, no satisfaction in my practice. Arm's length or fraction of an inch from truth, it seems I cannot get there from here. A maze of overwork, unclarity, and pain leaves me drained and disconnected as if all roads from this location lead to nowhere. I recall the precious memory of presence and try to pray, but the words rattle in my throat like pebbles thrown down a dry well, bouncing off stones, empty echoes hitting bottom with a thud. Bereft and rudderless, I breathe into the dark places and surrender my attempts. Trusting that in a blink, a breath, a nanosecond, I may be filled to overflowing once again.
filled to overflowing once again. 